0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Political anthropologists are are busy analyzing the the Trump communities and how Democrats can make uh, inroads there. Well, Sherry Bustos uh, thinks she knows the answer because she won by 20 points in her race for Congress in 2016 in a rural Illinois district that Donald Trump carried Uh, by three points. Uh, I sat down with her uh, last week to talk about that, the state of the Democratic Party, and uh, what she thinks made happen in 2018. Sherry Busto, so good to see you on a cold winter day here in Chicago. It is cold. Thank you for you, David. Thank cr- crossing you. the frozen tundra of Illinois to be here <laughs> uh, this morning. You know, uh, when I sit down with people, they all have different pathways to, um, to what, whatever they're doing. Usually it's politics, not always. But yours was pretty clear in that you were surrounded by politics and journalism all your life. I was. Well, tell me about that.
2: So I, we can go back to, gosh, I was a three-year-old girl, a uh, little girl, living in a place called uh, uh, Garden Courts, uh, which is, I, th- I think it's public housing now, um, on um, the east side of Springfield. And uh, my grandfather was elected to the state legislature. So He was a farmer, he was a hog farmer. Yeah. yeah, he he was a hog farmer. Uh, I come from a long line of farmers. Uh, we have my grandpa was a hog farmer. My aunt and uncle are still dairy farmers. We have cousins who are Angus farmers. They all grow corn and beans. So long, long line of uh, farmers. But so he was elected the state legislature. And what? Well, why did he run? This was. You remember the bedsheet Ballot. Yes, yes,
1: in um, Illinois, back in yeah, back yeah. in sixty four.
2: Yeah, it was nineteen sixty four. Not to date
1: you. Well, I was ba- three years old in nineteen sixty
2: four. All right, yeah,
1: that's it. Al- already news streaming out of here. <laughs> but the um, uh, yeah, we we for for quirky reasons, every state legislator was on one big ballot in the state. Yeah.
2: Right, right. Yeah. I know you know you know this history better than I do, but uh, so he was he had been the party chair in Iroquois County. So Iroquois County uh, lived in a little uh, farm town called Milford, which is where my dad and his brother and two sisters were all born and uh, lived until they well, until my dad went away to college but um, so he ran was only the second Democrat ever to be elected from Iroquois county from any it, race
1: and, oh, and was this because his name was well known in the county or i 'll tell you because what I remember about the bedsheet ballot is the two Finisher top finishers were, I think, Earl Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson the third.
2: Yeah, and my my grandfather's name was uh, Joseph Callahan, um, so he had a pretty good Irish good name, and, name yeah. and yeah, yeah, Irish yeah names do a, a good well. ballot name. And then, of course, two years later um being in this very very republican area um he he was he, he didn't win <laughs> so mm-hmm. so he was in for one term but i bring that up because um and these are still memories i have but my grandma and grandpa would would come down to springfield which is where i grew up and stay at our house when they were in session and um so i just liked it because my grandma and grandpa stayed with us And so that would have been like my earliest memories of being around anything political. But at that same time, my father was a political reporter for, uh, back in the day, the the State Journal Register in Springfield was, they had a morning paper and a PM. And my dad worked at the Register. And he had a a political column called Calligrams.
1: I should point out, your dad was a legend in uh, Illinois politics. He was uh, around uh, Illinois politics for a half a century.
2: Yeah. A long time.
1: And, uh, but I, I only say that to say I was very, very familiar with him. Yeah. And everybody in politics here was,
2: well, you go back to the Paul Simon days. I do. Yeah.
1: He, uh, uh, well talk about that. I mean, your dad, because he made a transition that I made, uh, from journalism to, uh, to politics, um, you still were a little girl when that happened. Yeah. yeah. Why, why did he uh, Why did he make that transition?
2: Well, so he had been a uh, – got out of – he graduated from Illinois College in Jacksonville uh, in 1955, went to the Army, served for two years in the Army most of that time in Germany, came back, married my mom in 1957, started having kids in 58, 59, and 61. And um, so he had three little kids. And, again, I was telling you, we lived in this uh, a duplex in uh, garden courts people in springfield would know where that is and uh, we outgrew this little this little place and um, he wasn't making very good money so he goes to the editor at the time and and um, and asked for a raise and the editor said well gene you're you're already the the best paid reporter we have we can't give you any more so at the same time uh, do you remember anything about this meat scandal that the state of illinois had Um, Vaguely, vaguely. All right. So so, so there was a meat scandal. And what Mm -hmm. it was is horse meat was being sold as beef. And um, so the governor's office, uh, it would have been Governor Kerner at the time, uh, decided that they uh, needed somebody to help get this thing out of the press and – you know, so they could move on and get the work done. So they offered my dad a job. It was significantly more pay. So really, the only reason he left journalism, because he loved it, loved every minute of it, was because he couldn't make any more money there. He had, you know, three kids and a wife who was staying at home with us. And um, he had this job offer and took it. And so he was handling press. He was a deputy press secretary in in the Kerner administration. Assigned
1: to the horse meat
2: yeah, the, hor- the horse meat scandal, and and basically just you know I I don't I never asked him about how he got it straightened up, but I'm guessing they just took accountability and said, look, we're going to have better oversight, and make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Yeah. So that's why he left journalism after you know a decade or so, and and went into politics.
1: And and he ended up uh, next working for Paul Simon, a guy who I left journalism uh, to work for. Paul was the lieutenant governor. Of Illinois at the time. Talk about that relationship, because uh, a lot of folks who are listening don't know who they probably think Paul Simon is the guy who teamed up with Art Garfunkel and made a lot of really
2: <laughs> different Simon. Good, from the, yeah, good
1: records. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, I consider Paul Simon one of the best public servants our, our state has ever produced. Yeah. Uh, he was at the time lieutenant governor, and um, my so my dad went from Kerner. Then, if you remember, for a short time there was Governor Shapiro. Yes, and worked with Governor Shapiro, and then to Paul Simon. So that was that, that's where he uh, how he ended up with Paul Simon. Paul Simon was lieutenant governor. My dad was his. I think they called it administrative assistant at the time, but would be chief of staff now. And uh, Paul made a decision to run for governor, which is, I think, probably at the, about the time where you and my father um, started. I was a little connecting. bit,
1: a little bit later. Yeah. Okay, but All but right. 1972, Paul Simon ran for governor,
2: and that was the first person I ever went door to door for. So I would have been about 10 years old. At the time, and but but Paul Simon was this guy who always wore a bow tie. Yeah, had this real deep baritone voice,
1: thick horn uh, rim, uh, uh, big uh, horn rim yep, glasses. Yeah, big horn rim
2: glasses. I mean, there uh, you wouldn't he have
1: look like Orville Redenbacher.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, Paul. I don't know if uh, when I worked for Paul, he always his suits were always. Uh, Several inches too short in the pants. Yeah, and it turned out that he, uh, some constituent, had died in in Southern Illinois and bequested his
2: that sounds suits like to Paul. Paul. Like...
1: And Paul said, "Well, why get him? You know, <laughs> why why bother getting them fixed? You know, they 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 serve their purpose." Yeah, but, that sounds like. But Paul. you know, the thing about Paul was, and you know, I I'm sh- when I left journalism, I loved journalism as your dad loved it, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about your. Career in journalism, sure. but I felt if I was going to leave, I should leave w- for someone who w- in whom I believed and mm-hmm. who I knew would never embarrass me, other than the short pants. <laughs> uh, and uh, and Paul was a guy who had started a little newspaper himself, uh, or bought one in Southern Illinois used it to crusade against corruption down there, Uh, ran for office for that reason because nobody else would, got elected in his mid-20s, and went to the legislature and fought for political reform and fought for civil rights, which wasn't easy in southern Illinois. Uh, he was uh, he was an exemplary public servant, really was.
2: He he was for his entire career. Uh, he would go on not to win that that race for governor.
1: Yes, uh, It was not to win because he supported an income tax.
2: Because he was honest with the with the voters, and, and it was yeah. it was something that was needed. Right. And uh, but his his candor um, led to his defeat. And uh, my dad would always say too that uh, in this Democratic primary, it was against Dan Walker that. Um, you know, Dan Walker uh, would would criticize Paul, and Paul didn't want to hit back, and um, and so he ends up losing. And I still yeah, remember yeah.
1: Dan Walker ended up in the penitentiary, and Paul ended up in the U.S. Senate. Yeah. So it all worked out.
2: Um, but. but- you know, so I, I remember waking up that next morning, we would always stay up really late on election night and thinking, oh my gosh, my dad's out of a job. What are we going to do? I mean, I was like really worried about this. Yeah. Um, and then he would go on to, he had a short stint in city government working for one of the city commissioners uh, for less than a year and then went to work with Alan Dixon who at the time was state treasurer then became secretary of state and then U.S. US senator. senator. Yeah.
1: And what did, what did being around all of this uh do for for you what what did you what did you take in from being surrounded by all of this
2: well so um probably one other thing to mention about paul simon and and i hope your listeners can get a feel for just what a tremendous guy this was but after he lost he got a job out at harvard Mm
0: -hmm. to
2: teach so he took his wife jean Um, who he had served in the state legislature with and and had married her. And they had two kids at the time, Martin and Sheila, Sheila who would go on to be our lieutenant governor in our state. But at the time they were little and they move out to uh, Massachusetts and uh, Paul teaches and the kids enroll in school. He decides after one semester, he wants to come back to Illinois. Well, but he doesn't want to take his kids out of school so Paul ends up living with us. Mm-hmm. Um, in our at that point, we had moved after uh, that that duplex when my dad started making a little more money. We live in a, in a very modest house on, in uh, off of West Jefferson in Springfield, and uh, so Paul lived with us for about a half a year. And I mean, again, very vivid memories of um, our discussions around the uh, the kitchen table and how he would. Dress compared with my dad for, I mean, you were talking about Paul's short pants <laughs> and stuff, but my dad was like the worst dresser you can imagine. You know, he'd wear short sleeves year round with suits and, you know, ties, and he'd always have stains on his shirts because he'd yeah, be you know, eating and.
1: Not- I would not criticize anyone for that. That That is in the fine tradition of old newspaper men who'd be going to politics. And, well,
2: he, he was bad. It, yeah. and then, and, but Paul – and my, you know, my dad would wear his you – know, he, he had this pink tie-dyed shirt that our neighbor girl gave to him, and, and he'd wear his underwear just walking around the house. didn't matter who was there. And Paul would wear pajamas and a robe, and it'd be all tied mm-hmm. up and everything. And it was just like, oh, my gosh, this is just so unusual. <laughs> we, just, we weren't used to something like this. But um, – you know, but Paul being around um, our house for about a half a year was, uh, you know, I mean, if you think about some of the conversations we were able to have, this is a guy who wrote how many books, David? I yeah. mean, many, many, many books.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
2: And you probably have some of them in I your, your library yeah. be, behind you. But, and I have, I think, every single one of his books. I yeah. haven't read them all, but I have them all, and they're all inscribed to my to my dad. But, um you know, I, I would say my, my growing up years were having people like uh, Paul Simon and, you know, Dick Durbin, his first job out of law now school the senator, was with...
1: Longtime senator from Illinois. Yeah,
2: was and and he worked with Paul Simon. So it would be people who were leaders in democratic politics would come over to our house because my dad was a very social guy. And um, not that my mom was a great cook, but she didn't care if people stopped by at any hour, she'd, you know, make him an ice cream sundae or whip something up and... We had unbelievable conversations, and what I so appreciate about uh, my family is there wasn't one time where I uh, was ever shushed or told to go away because it was an adult conversation. Um, I could always sit there, and I just would sit there and listen. And really, my only role would be my dad would say, can you get us a bud out of the out of the fridge? And I'd go and get the bud and Budweiser. And the, while the door was open, I'd take a quick little sip and
1: <laughs> probably not for the- Paul Simon. Though.
2: <laughs> no, he was a Pepsi drinker. You yeah, remember that? Yeah. I sure do. Oh, no. He never drank yeah. any beer. But my dad was a beer drinker.
1: I, I always remember traveling with Paul. When I, I managed his campaign for the Senate in, 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 in 84 with David Wilhelm. He and I ran the campaign together. And we'd be on the road and Paul would say, Dave, can you, I think I need a Pepsi-Cola. Can you <laughs> get me one of those? So, uh, but you didn't then choose to go uh, into politics or public service. You you, you, you took the other route into journalism. Why?
2: Really kind of by accident. Um, I, I realized, I, I loved um, politics. I absolutely loved it and, and did from the you know, my earliest memories. I, I loved those conversations. I loved being in the know. i even as a kid, I read the newspaper every day. But uh, so what happened is I went to Illinois College, followed in my mom and dad's footsteps. My mom and dad both went there in Jacksonville, ended up transferring um my junior year and went to University of Maryland, majored in government and politics, came back. I interned with the Illinois State Senate, thinking that I wanted to do something in politics. and realized in that internship, that I didn't like it at all. Um, I, Why? I, well, I, we sat in a room smaller than this, a r- small room with, there were four we're, interns. we were in the
1: modest worldwide headquarters of the Axe Files here, <laughs> is what she's pointing <laughs> and to. And this is very At the plush. University of Chicago and in the Institute of Politics.
2: Yes, and it's, and it's beautiful. And this is probably almost twice the size of this little room that we were in. There were four interns. I loved my fellow interns. I keep in touch with two of them to this day and um my job was to analyze bills and write a synopsis of of those and um you know i was what 20 i would have been 21 22 years old and it was boring to me um and and i realized that this is not what i wanted to do i didn't want to be in an office looking at at bills all the time and write what they meant And um, so (laughs) you
1: sound like the president. (laughs) Oh my God! I digress. I
2: hope uh, President Obama. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I just. But at that age, it was like it did not at all interest me. So literally, somebody says in passing to me, "You ask so many questions. You ought to be a reporter." And um, I have, you know, I, I think I was born to be a reporter, and I think I probably still could be a reporter and be a be a good one because I have a. Curiosity about virtually everything and I never run out of questions. So being on the receiving end of questions is not as comfortable for me as asking questions. And so um, I applied uh, at the uh, the uh, public affairs reporting program, which is a master's level program through University of Illinois at Springfield now. And I was accepted into that, and that's how I began my journalism career. I I started in a news bureau covering the state legislature, writing for four newspapers in the state. One of those newspapers hired me when I was done with that master's program. In
1: the Quad Cities. In the Quad
2: Cities. So I worked. started out- In uh,
1: western Illinois, bordering Iowa.
2: Yep, yep. So I moved to Moline. I didn't know anything about the Quad Cities. It was 1985. The economy was terrible. John Deere was on strike- um it was the Quad Cities was a very different community than than Springfield what I was used to and um my goal was I'd be there a year um and then I was going to go to the Chicago Tribune. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, uh you know 6 months later I I'm on the cop beat that was my first my first beat at the paper and um I meet this guy um, named Jerry Bustos. It was a third shift party and so all that means is you know the cops get off at eight o'clock in the morning. They work the midnight to eight shift, and at the time, I worked uh, let's see, five p.m. to one thirty a.m. Yeah,
1: that was pretty much the shift that I had when I started at the Tribune.
2: Yeah, did you? What did? What was your first beat?
1: That was it. You were, night you were on the police. Beat? Yeah,
2: great beat, isn't it? Because well. cops are notoriously tough. To get, you know, they, they don't trust you. And and so how do you get them to trust you? Well, so the other thing
1: is that it, it, you know, I mean, it exposed me to sides of life that I just never had seen before, yeah. Yeah. you know, often tragic, mm-hmm. but uh, also you saw great heroism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was a real education. Now, I, but there was that problem that the, the end of the workday was, you didn't want to like go home and go to sleep at the end of your work day because you don't want to start winding down while you're at work and so there weren't a whole lot of places to go other than saloons and i spent oh, yeah. a lot of time in them back. so did then. i
2: yeah. <laughs> so did i but uh, but that's uh i that's how i met my husband to be was at this third shift party at a at a tavern in downtown east moline called the Lil cowbell mm-hmm. and it's not little so I'm not yes. I'm pronouncing that like, you right. know, In case like any I don't of the know. Home
1: folks are listening. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, but but this is a place they literally had uh, seat belts on the bar stools. And um, so I, I meet him. And that sounds
1: and very practical. Actually. It, it <laughs>
2: was, it's, you know, not terribly upscale, um, <laughs> but, but we met and um, got married a, a year after that. And then, uh, you know, started raising our family. And I had pretty much had every beat you can have at the newspaper and um, really loved every day of my career. But, David, back to your point about what you see when you're a reporter. You are exposed literally to the worst possible um, scenarios in people's lives. You know, maybe after somebody loses a loved one in a car crash or a murder. Yeah. Uh, to My you,
1: first story was my first story ever when I worked at the Tribune, was a tornado in Lamont, which is a suburban oh, yeah, community no Lamont, that just yeah. devastated uh, Lamont. And uh, that was something I had never been uh, exposed to. And, you know, people's lives were – some oh, yeah. were lost, but lot their lives were roiled by this in a way, you, you know, I – couldn't have imagined yeah so. i mean
2: it, it is literally exposure to people in the best of time their best of times in their lives and the worst of times in their lives and you know meeting everyone again from you know uh, accused or or convicted murderers to uh presidential candidates and being um a newspaper in eastern iowa i always lived in illinois but being a newspaper there all of the presidential candidates you know we we'd had to have access to the, all those guys and um and so it accused
1: was, criminals and politicians, which in Illinois <laughs> can often be that the same happen. thing.
2: It does happen in Illinois, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah,
1: a few of those governors you
2: mentioned.
1: <laughs> yeah, Otto only four governors Walker. have
2: gone to prison in my lifetime. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's and it is bipartisan in Illinois, too, when it, it comes to governors it, going to prison.
1: It <laughs> is. It is. Hopefully that's a trend that will not. continue. Yes, I, I hope. I hope. Yeah. But um, so so you, you you did that for 17 years. Yeah. I did. And what made you decide to, to leave journalism?
2: Well, uh, it was a combination of turning 40, 9-11 happened, and a job offer came to me. And And the reason I bring up the, you know, turning 40 and 9-11 is every 10 years of my life, I've always kind of done this reassessment. Uh, am I doing what I should be doing? Am I making a difference? Should I be considering doing something else? So I did that when I was 30, 40, 50. And when I turned 50, I ran for, for Congress. Um, and so that happened. Nine eleven happened, and if you remember, I'm to kind think of ahead
1: to anyway. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> so if, if if you can think about your, you know, all of our emotions with nine eleven, right? It was everybody was thinking about, gosh, life changes in an instant. Yeah. So that was happening, and I literally get a call. I'm in the middle of the newsroom. I get a call from the president of uh, one of the health systems in our region.
1: Let me h- have you hold that sure. thought. And we're just going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. So you were telling me about the offer that came in.
2: Yeah, from so this I get healthcare. I get a call from the president of this health system, and says, um, "You know, we have a new CEO. We would like to hire you to be our director of communications." And I immediately said, "No, thank you." Um, and he said, well, do you want to just talk about it? And I, and I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm really not, not looking. And I, you know, I love what I do. And, you know, that back to the 9-11 and the, in the turning 40, I was just going to figure out, you know, what was my path going to be to be the editor of the paper? Mm-hmm. That was really kind of how I was reassessing things. Um, so I go home that night. The
1: interim steps. know, I'll never forget. Sorry to interrupt. No, no problem. You, but, um, uh, you know, that was always held out. I left the newspaper when I was young, like 28, 29 years old, and they said, you ought to stay. You could be editor of the newspaper someday. But one of my colleagues said, but in between, you have to do all these other jobs. And he said, you know, uh, you know what an assistant city editor is? And I said, no. And they said, that's a mouse trying to become a rat. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so I didn't want to be part of this whole corporate thing. And uh and when I when I switched, but anyway, so back to to enough about me. Let's talk about no. You.
2: I, I could yeah. talk about you all day long. I, <laughs> I can start asking you questions, David. Uh, so um, anyway, I go home that night, and I I tell my husband, hey, I get this this uh, call about this. He goes, what'd you tell him? I said I told him I wasn't interested. He said, why would you say that? And I said because I'm not interested. And he, he said, well, why don't you just hear him out? I said, yeah, you know, I guess, uh, you know, what what do I have to lose? So I end up meeting with the guy. At the end of the conversation, he said, are you interested? And I said, well, I'm intrigued. And he said, well, let me set up a meeting with the CEO. I go meet with the CEO immediately. It's like, you know how sometimes you meet people and you think, I am very impressed with that mm-hmm. person. I could I could work with that guy. So I meet the CEO, a guy named Bill Lever. Uh, he's, he came from Michigan, Detroit, Michigan at a health system, came to, to our region of the Quad Cities. And um, after meeting with him, I thought, I'd, I'd like to work with that guy. Um, Take the job, and that's what I ended up doing. Um, I I moved up, um, ended up becoming. I started out as a director of corporate communications, ended up being a senior director, then a vice president of the larger health system um, for for a number of years, and you know so did that for ten years. And uh, at that, during that, I also. Uh, was allowed to get very involved in the community, something you can't do as a journalist, right? I mean, you can't serve on boards, right. you can't run for right. office, you can't do any of that. You can't yeah. even pound a yard sign, right? But while I was doing that job, I was actually encouraged uh, by my boss to get involved. So I served on a lot of boards. Let, and, let me just ask you one thing yeah.
1: about this, though. Uh, in addition to uh, in addition to permitting and encouraging this community involvement, mm-hmm. how much did that experience educate you about the healthcare system?
2: Oh, it, it educated me quite a bit about the health care system. I mean, we would, part of my job was to make sure that, uh, you know, people could navigate the health system. Part of my job was uh, to make sure that when there were people uh, who couldn't afford their care, um, how are we going to make sure that they could afford their care? And, you know, raising money through our foundation. I didn't physically raise the money there, but I wanted to make sure that our foundation was successful so we could help people. Um, again, even you know transitioning from journalism to healthcare, you saw people in their happiest of times, you know after a baby's born or something like that, to you know their absolute worst time in their lives, yeah. and saw so many people um, struggling and um, people who couldn't afford their care, and you know how were we as a health system going to help them? We were a nonprofit health system. Mm-hmm. And um, no, but learned a lot about the, the, the business component of it as Does well. This,
1: to, and did that help you when you got to Congress? And, you know, you're obviously still dealing with these health care issues in a big way.
2: Yeah, a great deal. It, it, I, when I worked in this health system, is, it was during a period that was before the Affordable Care Act, during, the Affordable Care Act at passing and then after. So, you know, we knew that we were on an unsustainable path how we were delivering health care. It was too expensive. The, the costs were going up too, um, too much every year. And yet the outcomes for patients and the, it, were not improving. So we did a lot within our health system because we had this innovative CEO that said, let's take control of our own destiny and figure out how we are going to bring costs down and improve patient outcomes. And so we were on the path to do that during all of the Affordable Care Act negotiations. And how does the
1: Affordable Care Act affect your… Health system? Um,
2: actually, initially, I think in a pretty good way because the Affordable Care Act, this gets a little bit in the weeds, but uh, you remember the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation yes. that allowed for uh, demonstration projects, pilot projects all over the country that allowed hospitals and health systems and clinics to try new ways of delivering care. And we took on some of those um, where, for instance, you know, you'd bundled payments. If you were going to get a, a hip replacement, that the patient knew, the insurance company knew, there would be one cost didn't matter if there were complications that mm-hmm. included your rehab, your anesthesia, the surgery fees, all of that. Yeah. Um and
1: So there was an impetus to to, to do better do it, to do it right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, but so so um you know I went into Congress when I eventually ended up uh, running for Congress and winning having a pretty decent understanding about health care and even on a personal level um, you know I had a when when the Republican who I ended up defeating um, Literally, when he was elected, he defeated a, a sitting Democrat in our in our congressional district in northwestern Illinois. Um, when he was elected, my brother was on his deathbed.
1: I remember that your, bro- that your brother was a baseball time. coach at Southern Illinois, and and he. Had cancer?
2: Yeah, my brother Dan Callahan had been, uh, you know, he was a high school baseball coach and then went to coach at Eastern Illinois University for five years and then was uh, the head coach at Southern Illinois University for 16 years. And um, he had this rare form of cancer that the doctor would prescribe um, treatment that the insurance company would not cover. And when you see something like that up close with a family member and how to, to, how to figure all of that out, how you're going to get the care that a doctor's saying you need to stay alive, yet the, the treatment is, you know, many thousands of dollars for every dose. And, and knowing that I and my family were not at all unique. This was happening all over the country. We knew that we needed to do something with with health care. And I think, uh, frankly, what uh, the Trump administration is doing right now um, and through this this tax bill that just passed that will knock an additional 13 million Americans off their health insurance is just um, I, I don't know how anybody could support doing something like that or how anybody could take pride in um, saying that we're going to, uh, you know, we, we want this to, to be a destroyed um, Obamacare. And I, frankly, I call it the Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I don't call it Obamacare because I think there are too many people who have yeah, negative I agree views with of you. that. Yeah, I agree with you. And, um, and it's, it's interesting. helped a lot of well, people.
1: You know, you, you know, the the experience in Kentucky was they rebranded the program as Kentucky Connect. And if you asked them even about the Affordable Care Act versus Kentucky Connect, Kentucky Connect, was, which was quite successful because the governor was supportive of uh, in reducing uh, uninsured, uh, the rate of uninsured there, right. people liked Kentucky Connect. And when Mitch McConnell ran for re-election there, he said, well, I support Kentucky Connect. I you know, I just have concerns about the Affordable Care Act.
2: You know, and that's the phoniness of politics that I just, it, it, it is really hard for, for me to um, accept that that is part of politics. And I know it is again. You know, we've talked about um, you know how long you've been in politics, how long I've been around it. I you know I'm only in my third term right now. I, I learn something new every day. But um, that kind of talk that the person who's saying it knows it's phony as it's coming out of its mouth, out of his mouth, is just you know I think it's a disturbing element of politics. You must be
1: disturbed quite a bit in Washington.
2: I I am I am <laughs> and and you know but I have hope. I I really do. We're sitting here and you know the start of 2018 and. Um, I, I have a lot of hope. There's great candidates running for Congress all over this country. And um, I'm, I'm my political role at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is I'm chair of Heartland Engagement. So I'm working with all of the, the candidates um, in the Midwest who are running in these tougher districts and kind of the, some of the Trump land. And I'm very, very encouraged by a number of the candidates who are running. And, and I think we've got a really good shot at, at picking up, a number of seats. I,
1: I want to talk about that. Uh, before I do, though, I, 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 we missed sort of a big stage in your life, which is the decision to run for public office in the first place. Because you were a, a you were a city council member in East Moline before you ran for Congress. What made you decide, having not gone the political route and deciding that wasn't for you, becoming a journalist, going into the healthcare field? What brought you back to? To actually running for public office.
2: Well, e- e- running for for city council. Uh, East Molina is a town of twenty one thousand people. I I ran in one ward um, where there were seven seats, so I literally represented only three thousand people. So you know, not not this huge base of uh, you know our constituency, mm-hmm. but the reason I decided to do that is is the same reason where I a lot of women. Run is I was asked. It is not something that just popped in my head. I I literally when I was a journalist and then even going into healthcare, I had no plans on the horizon to run for office. It was not something I thought I would ever do. But um, I was asked. It was an open seat, and um, it, actually, what went through my head? I had covered the city for about five years. That was one of my one of my beats, and um, I, my first thought was. I think I could do better than a lot of the council members I've covered over the years, and um, so made the decision that I, I wanted to run and make a difference in you know that little part of the uh, the, the city of East Moline. It was a three way primary. I ended up winning, and um,
1: lots of TV, I bet uh,
2: zero TV. But I, <laughs> but you know I you know what was interesting though is you know I I have a journalism background and a public relations communications background, so I I ran a and I and I raised a decent amount of money, um, more money than anybody running for alderman ever had. So I had this, um, you know, my literature was, you know, it had full color, uh, wasn't black and white, it wasn't like you know Xeroxed or anything. It was it was very professional looking. Um, I actually had. Billboards, because I knew the guy who ran the billboard company, and he, he said <laughs> if I if I pay for the the what's going to be posted, he'd give me he'd give me time. It'd be an in kind contribution.
1: The local government is I always think it's the most vital level of government because you're closest to people, and like when you represent three thousand people, they all know you, they know where you live, they see you in the. Grocery yeah. store. They see you at ball games. They I loved and they, it, and they let you know exactly they, what's on there. Yes, mind. they do.
2: Um, you know, anything from calls about a pothole right in front of their driveway that needed to be filled to a, I remember a neighbor walking down the street in the middle of the summer waving her water bill and saying that she was going to go to the press if I didn't take care of this. And I mean, it, it, from a stop sign or w- whatever it is, I, but I absolutely loved it. And, um, you know, I was raised um, – and if you talk to anybody who ever knew my father, um, you know, we were raised – to you return every phone call. Yeah. And you, re- you return I it the day that. you get it.
1: I remember that. Yeah. Um,
2: and, you know, that his time was before emails and all of that. But, um, you know, so my philosophy – and if you ask anybody who works in our um, – whether it be our political or our governmental office, we return every phone call we get. We respond to every email. And so um, I was easily reelected uh, for a second term. But, um, and I think it was based more than anything on if I got a call, I took care of it. I had a great relationship with most of the city department heads, so especially the guy who would uh, fill potholes and uh, do that kind of thing. So I could literally call the guy um, who was in charge of uh, maintenance services. And he'd go out within an hour of me calling him and fill a pothole. And it made me look really good. And I have deep appreciation for— And does that translate
1: for- as as a member of Congress? I mean, are there— did you learn habits there that have been useful to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I it, we have the same philosophy. As you know, I, I think there's I think there's three things and that you need to do to be a good public servant. And I and I don't think it's um, a heck of a lot more complicated than that. But number one, you better work hard. Um, you know, in 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 our case, as a member of Congress, I make one hundred and seventy four thousand dollars a year. Maybe some people who are listening to this might think, okay, that well, that's nothing. But people who I represent where the average household income is $45,000, I'm making darn good money. So I better work hard for it because it's their dollars, it's their tax dollars that are paying my salary. Number two, um, if you have a fight on your hands, you better fight and uh, you better fight hard. And number three... Um, you better get results. And it doesn't matter that I'm in the minority party, that we have a 24-vote deficit in Congress. It doesn't matter. Um, the expectation is that, that as a member of Congress representing the 700,000 people in the 14 counties that I represent in Central and Western and Northern Illinois, that I get something done. And so that is, I and I approach my job as a city council member the same way. You know, you're not there just to sit in a chair and um, you know, listen to uh, people, uh, other members of, of the city council talk, you're there to get something done. And and that's how I view my job now. And I did as a city council. Member so when you well.
1: got elected in, in uh, 2006, so your district, uh, I remember when uh, Lane Evans got elected, young, progressive, it was uh, uh, really um, kind of a lightning bolt when he got elected mm-hmm. from, because that district had not been represented by a Democrat for a hundred years mm-hmm. before he won that seat. And it had, uh, after he, uh, res- uh retired because of illness, he's mm-hmm. now sadly passed away. Uh, that district changed hands and there was a Republican. You defeated, uh, that Republican and you, you, you've won reelection twice. Uh, and you won last time, uh, as uh, President Trump was carrying the district. So now everybody you makes pilgrimages to the Quad Cities to say, what is the magic elixir that allowed you to win by, what, 20 points mm-hmm. in a district that Trump had won? And, and what is that formula?
2: Well, um, so go back to that, you know, what, what I believe public servants should do, work hard, fight for people, and, and get results. But, you know— it, the other thing we do is, uh, and this comes very naturally to me, but you know, I, I listen to people. Um, you know, David, you go back to your reporting days, and mm-hmm. you know, you didn't do all the talking, right? right. You, you you asked questions and you listened, and you that's how you had information to be able to put together a great story. And again, my comfort level really is and as much as i'm talking now is is really asking questions and drilling down and understanding people i love personal stories um i love being around people i'm a i'm very much an extrovert that's how i get energy is being around people and um i am perfectly comfortable um in any neighborhood in our congressional district so
1: explain uh why uh why trump carried your district
2: Well, uh, so 11 of the 14 counties in the 17th Congressional District of Illinois are rural. Um, The the, the towns in most of these counties might be 200, 300, 400, 500 people. Um, I'll I'll give you a a couple quick examples. Maytag, all right? Your former boss, President Obama, talked about what happened at Maytag. But Mm -hmm. uh, for your listeners, uh, it was 13 years ago. Um, last September, that Maytag up and took every last one of the more than thousand jobs to Mexico. And here we are thirteen plus years later in Knox County, Illinois, and the wages there still have not recovered because those were good union jobs. Um, they, um, people could support their families on those jobs, but they just up and left to mexico.
1: so you 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 agree with him on the issue of trade. Is that fair to say?
2: Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, we've got to be smart about trade. You know, I mean, trade also is critical to agriculture, mm-hmm. and um, ag is the biggest economic driver in the state of Illinois. I know that's a surprise to some people in Chicago, but it is still our biggest economic driver, and um, so we've we've got to be smart about trade. But but I'll tell you what I do agree with is we've got to do something about um, giving companies incentive to stay in our country instead of shipping jobs overseas. And and, and I, I think we've got some good policies to address that. But but the Maytag example was just one. We had another one in Stevenson County, which is in the northern part, during my first campaign. Uh, Bain Capital had bought a company called Sensata, um, decided to take every one of those jobs that were good-paying jobs where people could support their families, send all those over to, to China. And, you know, you've got people who are, are training their replacements. You know, the Chinese workers would come over, and they would they would have to train their replacements. I became very close with a lot of the people who lost their jobs, and I still keep in touch with them. I mean, they're heartbreaking. And then, you know, in, in my first term, after I was elected, there was another company in Joe Davis County, which is uh, in a town called Hanover, that sent... Uh, A company called Robert Shaw, they had almost a 0% defect rate on these little um, valves that they would make to regulate water in in dishwashers, and uh, a nearly 0% defect rate, and yet all of those jobs got sent over to Mexico. So why did President Trump win, and why did Hillary Clinton not do well in a district like mine? Because people who have gone through that, whether it's their own family or their neighbors or their entire community— um, who are making half what they were um, before those jobs went away, uh, they're hurting. And they, in some cases, have to work two or three jobs. Um, they you know, they can't buy new F-150 trucks or Silverados like they used to um, every four or five years. Um, and, th- and they're hurting. And, and how you find out that people are hurting is you go where they are. Um, I don't like to just go to Democratic Party functions. I, um, I go to supermarkets on Saturday. We actually call it Supermarket Saturdays, where um, I have zero agenda other than to walk up and down the aisles and introduce myself and say, What's on your mind? What do you want me to know? I'm going to be heading back out to Washington on Monday. What do you want me to work on? What's concerning to you?
1: we got to take a short break. Yeah. We'll be right back with Sherry Bustos. This issue of listening, do you feel that uh, the Clinton campaign, Hillary Clinton, and the Democratic Party generally did a poor job of that in 2016? Do you think that the messaging of the Democratic Party did not speak to your constituents?
2: No, I, I don't think that a lot of people felt like they were listened to. Um, you know, I'm one of only 12 Democrats in all of Congress serving. In a district that Donald Trump won in. And yet, if we're going if Democrats are going to win back the majority, we've got to figure out how we're going to do well in these districts. And I think part of it is it is going to where people are. Don't just go to, you know, the Democratic fish fry on a Friday night during Lent. Uh, but but go to the supermarkets. Um I, I do something else we call sherry on shift, And all that is is I job shadow people. but but when I'm doing that, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with a welder, um, or somebody's teaching me to drive a forklift, or I'm processing carp that have been caught out of the Mississippi River, or um, you know, I'm in a car repair shop or I'm mixing chemicals or whatever it is. And I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with people, and I'm asking them, you know, especially if their boss is out of uh, out of range, you know, when was the last time you got a raise? Um, were you Were you and your family able to take a vacation last year? And, um, you know, and you learn a lot from people um, when you ask them, what do you do for fun? Um, and when you, I, I, you know, one of the, my most vivid memories of that conversation was um, it was a home care nurse uh, woman married to a guy who worked for one of the cities in the, in, the, in the region where I live. They had two kids. And when I said, what do you guys do for fun? And she said, we have cable television, and I said, "Oh, I said, do, do you like not like to go to movies?" And she goes, "No, we just we watch movies on cable television. That is how we have entertainment because they can't afford to do other things." And you only know those stories if you get out and, and listen to people.
1: Yeah, I, I we we have a home in rural Michigan, and it uh, we had a fire there, and the uh, volunteer firefighters came. It was actually New Year uh, on New Year's Eve some years ago, an appliance. Malfunctioned and started a fire, and uh, these guys charged into this building and they struck the fire and saved our home. And I said afterwards, "So you guys just volunteer to do this?" They said, "No, they, we get eight dollars an hour, and that you know, then we can take our family out to dinner once in a while with yeah. that." And it was striking. You yeah. know it yeah. was striking.
2: And and um, but there are, there are so many stories. What about
1: culturally? What about the cultural? Gulf, the sense that that there's this sort of metropolitan mm-hmm. elite that kind of looked down on uh, small towns in rural America, that Trump seemed to tap into this whole point of not just that the system was rigged, which is what you're talking to on the economy, mm-hmm. but that you're disrespected.
2: Well, it, they don't want uh, people coming in and talking about social issues all the time either. Um, that's, that's a part of the, the component here. They, um, w- what I was hearing when I do our supermarket Saturdays um, was um, jobs and the economy. It's, I mean, they wanted us to focus on what are we going to do to improve their lives? Um, what are we going to do so that their kids who grew up in this town of uh, 400 people um, want to come back and, and stay when they get out of school or, or want to take over the family farm or whatever it is? And um, they view too many Democrats as focusing on things that aren't important to them. Um, You know, my my voting record on, um, you know, the vast majority of the social issues that Democrats believe in is no different than, um, you know, the vast majority of Democrats. But it's not what I talk about when I go into a room. Um, i I try to have a conversation about what's important to to people I try to uh, do my best to listen but you know we talk about what we've done to help fight for for jobs in the economy
1: there's been a lot of discussion about I, I I've said and I uh, before I I had a I admire Nancy Pelosi we've uh, she was speaker during the two years that I worked in the White House. She had as much to do with the success of the Affordable Care Act and some of the other initiatives of President Obama as anyone. And she's a very canny and, uh, 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 you know, really, in certain ways, brilliant legislative leader, as you know. But Uh, Some of your colleagues, uh, Seth Moulton and others, have complained that she is a negative image in some of these swing districts where Democrats have to win. Um, What's your cut on that? Because I know you've got one foot in sort of both camps in that you uh, have concerns about the image of the Democratic Party. And you're also in the leadership in a kind of peripheral way.
2: Yeah, so um, my my leadership role, we we talked about what I'm doing politically and working with candidates in the in the heartland region. But um, on the governmental end of things, I was actually elected among my colleagues to be uh, one of the chairs of the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee. So which means I do have a seat at the leadership table. And um, here's what I think we need to to think about as the future of of, uh, Democrats in Congress. Um, as I sit around that table, um, I am the only Midwesterner sitting around that leadership table. Um, I am the only uh, person sitting around that table who comes from a Trump district. Um, almost everybody sitting around that leadership table comes from a entirely um, strong Democratic district. And I would contend that every place that we have um, a Democratic district in the United States, congressional district, we have a Democrat. Where we don't have as many Democrats are in these swing districts that we have to win in order to to get back in the majority and do things to fight for, for people. And um, I, as much as we value diversity in our party, and I'm so glad we do, because I think every organization stronger if you have a diverse group of people sitting around the table, we do not apply the same level of valuing that diversity when it comes to geographic diversity. And I want to help bring about that change.
1: That's sort of a problem with the, the system right now, isn't it? Because you've got uh, the majority of Democratic districts are solidly Democrat, never really a, strong, a, a general election like the one you faced. The majority of Republican districts are solidly Republican, never a general election. So the only real threat to incumbents is in primaries, and it doesn't lend itself to – to compromise, to uh, uh, kind of no. construct a bridge building?
2: I, I think the two biggest problems in our democracy right now are how we do redistricting and campaign finance. I, 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 we need to fix both of those things, and I think we would have a much better country um, if we did that. If we had more swing districts like mine where – I can tell you, when I'm not out in Washington, I'm, I'm back in Illinois – and, and I'm walking the supermarket aisles, and I'm job shadowing people, and, um, I, and, I'm out, I, and, and there are people in these, these very, very Democratic districts who, um, they don't have to work hard. They, they probably don't even have to have a robust uh, constituent service operation. And um, I, I think we would be a much better country if we had more swing districts. So I can't
1: let you get. I can't let the whole thing go without you answering my question, which is: Is Pelosi a problem for d- candidates in these swing districts? Not just her, but the entire leadership, which has been there. I mean, they're all. Um, she got mad when I asked her this. Uh, and said it was a, a it was a sexist question because so I wouldn't ask this of men. But would I, you ask I, it of men? I, I would ask it, <laughs> yes, because I think leaders do become.
2: Yeah, I, I don't not see not it as people. a sexist question but by any means, and I think it's a fair question. Um, she uh, has been really a. Um, a remarkable leader. Yeah, I stipulated and, that. Yeah, and um, and I and I think after 2018, let's see how we do, and let's see who ends but up. But you running. don't think she
1: will? She's an impediment to recovering the house.
2: Well, I, I think anybody who's in that leadership role, uh, who's ever speaker, who's ever leader, is criticized. They are. I mean, look at Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, he's brought into every Senate race mm-hmm. in the country. Look at Paul. I Ryan. think that's a
1: fair point, and I do think. And I raise this with. Uh, congressman moulton mm-hmm. which is wouldn't anybody yes. in that role become uh, a target and therefore utilized in these campaigns but the longevity uh does make it easier to do that because there's more familiarity
2: yeah but, but we've got some really outstanding uh, newer uh younger members of congress who their, their day will come and um you know, it's, 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 it's a matter of time when, when people will run for various leadership roles. And um, I have confidence in our caucus that we will make good decisions as to who we're going to elect to our leadership. And um, but, you know, I mean, Does, time, time it doesn't hurt
1: the Democratic Party that so many of its leaders are in, in in Congress and out. Some of the leading candidates and so on are uh, up in years in their upper 70s. You, the Democratic Party uh, presents itself as a party that's forward looking uh but
2: yeah I, th- I think if you look at the the candidates who are running um here in 2018 um we have a woman named Alyssa slotkin in in michigan who was a uh, had worked with the cia and, and she's one of the most innovative creative candidates i have seen in a long time we've got brendan kelly who's running in southern illinois uh, who's a state's attorney, uh, a veteran himself. We have a woman named Abby Finkenauer, who's running in, in eastern Iowa, would be the youngest woman ever elected, mm-hmm. uh, you know, comes from a union household. We've, we've got um, young people. We have smart people. We have veterans. But they're not
1: the leaders of the party. They're not the face of the Democratic Party, today.
2: No, but in time, they will be the face of the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party. And um, we've got a very, very important election in 2018, where to win back the House, we have to pick up 24 seats. And that's what I think we need to stay focused on making sure we're successful, not for the sake of uh, the Democratic Party. But I really do believe to my bottom of my heart that we need to do this for the sake of our country. I believe that we have the policies that help Families succeed and can address, you know, some of the struggles that we're seeing in a congressional district like mine and in a state like Illinois. Although,
1: there, you know, the complaint you hear is that there isn't a. I think it's hard for parties to define themselves absent a, a president, but you do hear the complaint that people don't really know exactly what it is that the Democratic Party stands for. And it seems to me that there are that every district is different, mm-hmm. and there has to be some respect for those differences as well. You didn't win because of the National Democratic Party. You won because of the campaign you ran that was tailored to the district that you knew and in which you've lived all your adult mm-hmm. life. Um, but I don't know that people have a sense of what the Democratic Party stands for right now. I think that people are there are a lot of people who are nervous and anxious about where the president is leading.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I don't know about if that's true in your district, is it? I mean, do you sense a, any?
2: I think we have a damaged brand, um, the Democratic Party, and I-, and I think we've got to rebuild trust. I, I think we need to start focusing on what people want us to focus on. I think we need to stop going down all of these um, diversionary routes that uh, President Trump uh, leads us down, and we just need to stay focused on people and families and what is going to help them have hope for their own futures, whether they live in rural, uh, the rural Midwest, or whether they live in one of the coastal uh, bigger cities. And I, I believe that we have the right policies, we have to keep talking about that. And, you know, the, the impeachment vote that we had to take um, a couple weeks ago, I, I think was a terrible plan to do that. And, and I, I, I expressed that, that to um, Al Green, who was the one who forced us to vote on that. I was very disappointed. The Congressman
1: in it. from Texas.
2: Yeah, I was very disappointed that um, it got to the point where we had to vote on um, impeaching the president at a time where we've got an investigation going on that's continuing, rather than just let that play out and see where that leads. The, you know, the, tr- the truth comes out in the end. I, I have a belief in that. And um, that's just do it. That's self-inflicted damage in con- congressional districts like mine, and the ones that we need to do well in because. Um, you know, in, in my district, Donald Trump is not underwater. He is not, you know, there are people... So he's
1: not a damaged brand in your district?
2: Not as damaged as he is in some of the, the other districts. I mean, we've done some polling here within the last, uh, you know, four, or six weeks that shows he is not underwater. Mm-hmm. And... Um,
1: Meaning that he's more popular than unpopular.
2: He's, he's it's it's about even, mm-hmm. it's, it's about even. But uh, people are still willing to give him a shot. Mm-hmm. And um, so I see my job as... Again, working hard, fighting and getting something done. The only way I can get something done is to work across the aisle and to have ideas that I can get um, my friends on the Republican side to be agreeable with me on. Because I, I can't do it with with a 24-vote deficit. No Democrat can. This is a random
1: question that I should have asked you earlier when mm-hmm. you mentioned that your, uh, your husband spent a career in law enforcement. Um How do you feel about those issues, uh, which have been very, very divisive, these issues about police community relations uh, that have boiled over in so many places, including Chicago? And what perspective do you bring, uh, given your personal relationships?
2: Yeah, I I, uh, believe when you look at police officers, they're no different than um, any other profession in that there are good police officers and there are bad ones. Um, there are people who are, um, you know, are Democrats, and there are people who are Republicans in law enforcement. There are, uh, you know, criminals who are in law enforcement, and there are exemplary people. And you know, it's just like in politics or in business or anything else. Um, we've got to make sure that we are addressing the problems and uh, some of the perceived problems, especially in the minority communities. Um, but what. I, I don't do, nor would I do, um, and it actually leaves a very bad feeling with me. Is when people generalize that all cops are bad, um, or that um, you know that that there can't be a positive relationship between the minority community and the law enforcement community. My husband. Um, is and I have both been members of the NAACP way before I was in Congress, um, or in, on the city council, and way before he was sheriff of Rock Island County, Illinois. Um, because we believe in making sure that um, you know we have good relationships with you know all parts of our community. I just I just don't like these broad brushes that are are painted on um, people or professions. And it, it's just like as as a politician, what is, Congress has a are we at single digit approval? Yeah, you're rating? Not doing
1: well. Um, you're slightly above the temperature in Chicago, but the temperature in Chicago is about zero. You know,
2: so. <laughs> well, you know, and so where, where people feel like um, because you're an elected official or because you're a member of Congress that you're a bad person or you're corrupt or whatever it is, um, what what I said at a luncheon in um, in Galesburg, Illinois yesterday. Is a guy came in, a Republican came in to the to our luncheon and said that he supported me and he voted for me and I was one of the few Democrats he would support or had supported. And um, but I was helpful to him on a, on an issue, and um, so I I thanked him. I said, you know, I I really appreciate you coming into this group and saying something like that and and uh, sharing a compliment because. While um, I don't think I'm any better than anybody just because of the job that I have, um, I also don't think I'm any worse than anybody. And then when people feel like they can beat up on whether it's you know politicians or uh, whether it's police officers or anything, I just think you know let's just take a look at the um, the person. Let's take a look at um, you know what we can do to make things better. And that's really kind of my approach to it.
1: That we're the political environment that's been created right now. It's difficult, difficult environment. One other issue that surfaced is, uh, in a big way lately, is sexual harassment mm-hmm. and worse. Um, some members of your caucus and uh, and of the Congress have had to leave uh, as a result of it. We've seen it across many different uh, realms. Um, what's your view of all of that? And um, it seems like a, a positive moment in the sense that behaviors that weren't permissive, per, uh, were, that weren't uh, proscribed before uh, are now, and that, you know, there's a greater awareness of this. On the other hand, there's um, – it It seems like there's a kind of frenzy about it. You saw a colleague of yours across the rotunda, Al Franken, left uh, – rather than waiting mm-hmm. to have a hearing because there was such a rush to force him out. Um, how, where's this all going?
2: We need to have a system in place to, to be able to um, process this in a way that makes sense. I mean, we can't just keep doing these one-offs and and all of that. But
1: Was he treated fairly, you think?
2: You know, it was his decision to, to resign. And I know there were, you know, many of uh, his colleagues. But that's like saying
1: there, there were 30 colleagues behind him on the uh, – and he was standing on the precipice, and they were pushing. So you could say it was his decision, but he had a lot of encouragement to leap
2: so I want to make sure that I'm getting this right, but I believe there were 13 women who had come forward by the time. He-
1: I don't know what the numbers were, but I mean, you know, he, he yeah. there I'm not defending his behavior. Yeah. And, you know, he you know, he was headed to the ethics committee probably yeah. along there.
2: But I but I do think it was his decision. I mean, he could have, you know, he could have stayed. But but I think we need to make sure that we have a system in place. So if there are accusers, um, there's a process to go through. Um, there are proper hearings, or you know what the so-called due process that that everybody's talking about. Um, but frankly, I, you know, back to the approval rating of Congress, I think we're, we should be better than um, think that any of any kind of sexual harassment is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've, I've worked in the private sector my entire life until um, until this job in Congress, and. Um, I there, there's not one job that I've had either, you know, as a kid um, or, you know, up until now being in Congress where I haven't seen this. And I, I think I, I, I choose to look at this in a positive way. Let's hope that this is, um, you know, a wake-up call, that yeah, this isn't well, okay in the workplace.
1: Yeah, well, that certainly should be that. Yeah. So for uh, let me just finish up by asking you about your future. You You considered a race for governor of Illinois this year. You didn't do it. Uh, why not?
2: Well, the path to success for me was very, very narrow, and um, while you know I'm, I'm not afraid of of uh, taking a chance, um, has to be a reasonable. It, yeah, it has to be reasonable, and um, it frankly it got down to money. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I knew exactly what I would have to raise. Ah, uh, to be able to be successful in a democratic primary, and a lot of
1: zeros there. A
2: lot of zeros, and it would have been making calls nonstop. And, you know, when you've got 102 counties in a very, very large state, you've you got to be able to get out and and talk with people and let people know who you are. And I, I would have been raising money nonstop. And when you've got uh, you know people in the race who had. Um, access to many Mm -hmm. zeros as as part of their personal wealth which i i do not have then um i it was it would have been a very difficult you see
1: a race for higher office in your future
2: yeah i'd I'd be open to it but i I think in politics it is so much about timing um you know what what do people want you know my i am what i would consider a very you know a reasonable Democrat. I I don't have a a voting record that is far, far, far left, Um, and you know there we have parts of our state that are are farther left than I am, and um, you know so I I just I I I, what I'm proud of is that I know I am doing what I'm doing. Um, I know that we have been in a position to help a lot of people. Um, in the short time that I've been in Congress, I'm very proud of the staff that we've put together who understands uh, to their core the importance of working hard and fighting for people and getting results. And uh, that's what I'll continue to focus on. And, you know, we've always had a saying in our family that if you do a good job, the future will take care of things. And if you do a bad job, the future will take care <laughs> of things too. And, you know, so I'll work hard and fight and be honest and Um, you know, do the best I can. And then we'll just, we'll see what, what happens.
1: Sherry Bustos, So, so good to see you. you. Come back.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN podcast network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.